Good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Bible Quest. I'm Jeff Smelser and uh, perhaps with me today will be Joe Works. I'm in Exton, Pennsylvania. Joe is in Elmira, New York, and he's having some internet uh, difficulties today. So we'll do the best we can. Drew DeGrotto, as usual, is in the background running things technologically. Um, I tell you what, uh, because I'm here all by myself today, Chase is, is unavailable today. And um, so I end up being here all by myself. So if you have questions or comments, boy, this would be a really good day for you to chime in with your questions and comments. The only thing is I'm gonna have trouble managing both what I need to be doing and talking to this camera and also watching for your comments to come in, but I'll do the best I can. We're going to Jeff, be in the book of Philippians again. Yeah, Drew. I'll interrupt you there. I'll keep an eye on it, um, and I will make sure that any comments coming in, I will take care of. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Drew. All right, so if you all uh, send your comments and questions, uh, either by means of the Facebook comments section or if you're watching on Zoom by the Zoom app, the Q&A, uh, Drew will spot those and get those to me, and we can talk about them. But we're going to be continuing our study of Philippians, and as I say, Joe Works may be joining us if he can uh, get past his internet difficulties. But last week, we started into this letter, um, and we really didn't get beyond the first couple of verses uh, in any significant way. We mostly talked about uh, this being a letter that Paul wrote while he was a prisoner in Rome, and it's probably a letter likely written sometime around AD 60 to 62, could be a little later than that. Um, it's addressed from Paul and Timothy. Uh, it's written, they describe themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. We talked last week about the fact that that word servant is really a word that means slaves. We emphasized this is our relationship with Christ. We just do what he says as a slave would do what his master says. We we, we, yes, we are creatures of free will, but we choose to be slaves so that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And then we talked about the, the term saints a good bit last week. This is addressed to the saints, and that means the holy ones. And so God's people are holy ones, and there was this group of people in Philippi who were holy ones. We went back to Acts chapter 16, and we saw the beginning of the gospel in Philippi. We saw the conversion of Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And, um, and, and we just realized that, wow, the gospel can be preached to anybody, to pagans, whomever. And when they become servants of Jesus Christ, when they become obedient to the gospel, they are made holy by the blood of Christ and they are saints. And then we talked about the terms with the bishops and deacons or with the overseers and servants. The word deacon here is a word that means servant, but it's not the same word that Paul used when he referred to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. It's, it's a word that doesn't necessarily refer to somebody who's being owned, but it really places emphasis upon the act of service that someone performs. R.C. Trench was a man who wrote a book called Synonyms of the Greek New Testament, and he distinguished between these words slave and servant, the one servant being diakonos, and it's the word from which we get deacon, that word, he said, defines the servant in terms of his work, whereas the word doulos, which is the word that Paul uses for himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus or slaves of Christ Jesus, he says defines the word or defines the person in terms of his relationship to his master. So Paul and Timothy are slaves to Christ. They belong to Christ. But the bishops and deacons, the deacons there refers to people who are being 
defined or described in terms of a, a responsibility, a task that they perform. And you can rightly think of Acts the sixth chapter where there were seven men who were chosen to serve tables. There was a specific task they were uh, being assigned. And you know, there's an observation to be made here. Sometimes I think churches get the idea that we, we need to appoint elders and deacons just because you're supposed to have them. You need somebody with those titles. And maybe especially with regard to deacons, they just get appointed just, well, we need some deacons, let's appoint some deacons. Don't know what they're going to do, but if we need somebody to do something, we'll know who to turn to. But in Acts chapter 6, there were seven men appointed to serve tables. There was a task to which they were being appointed. And really, I think that's the picture that we see here in as much as this word deacon is being used, or diaconus, a word that defines man in terms of the work he is to do. He is to perform a service. And so we should not think of these men as mere figureheads or people who are just appointed just because to be scriptural, scripturally organized, you need to have these offices filled. They were appointed to a task, and there are various tasks that are needed within the context of a congregation of God's people. And then you get to verse 2, and Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we'll begin our discussion today at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. And we'll start in here, and I'm going to read, and I'm just going to read right down through verse 7, and then we'll come back and make some observations about the text. Paul says, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you, always in every supplication of mine on behalf of you all, making my supplication with joy for your fellowship in furtherance of the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is right for me to be thus minded on behalf of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. All right, there's a whole lot in those few verses to talk about. And the first thing is this statement that Paul makes, I thank my God upon all my, remember, on, upon all my remembrance of you. It caught my eye sometime in the last few years how frequently in Paul's letters he mentions his remembrance of those to whom he's writing, and he thanks God for them. This is really... Uh, I think a good example for those of us who preach the gospel, and it's certainly something I need to, to give more attention to, just being thankful for the brethren uh, that support us. I don't just mean support us financially, but the brethren who support us emotionally and spiritually, um, being thankful for them, people we've taught the gospel to, and being appreciative of them. And uh, so we have this idea here that we see in a number of Paul's letters, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you, always in every supplication of mine. I'm reading from the American Standard, and I'm gonna take a moment to talk about uh, this word supplication. If we flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says, I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all men. We have the word prayer there, but when he talks about supplications, those would also be the way we usually word, use the word prayers. Those would be prayers, and thanksgivings would be prayers, and intercessions would be prayers. But you, what you have are some different categories, different kinds of things that, that we might pray about. 
Thanksgivings is obvious, giving thanks to God for something. Intercession is probably obvious. It means interceding. It's an intercession. It, it's when we intercede on behalf of someone. I'm trying to find the word, using the word, and that's not the way you're supposed to do it. But if we pray asking God's blessing upon someone who is sick, uh, if we pray for somebody who is spiritually struggling, uh, we are making an intercession. Uh, and then there's this word supplication. Now, maybe if you have a more modern translation, it may say something like requests. Uh, but an inter a supplication, let me get it right, a supplication is a request. So when Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you, always in every supplication of mine on behalf of you all, making my supplication with joy. I think that's saying that Paul asks something uh, for the Philippians from God. He's asking God's blessing upon the Philippians. And then he says, uh, for your fellowship in furtherance of the gospel from the first day until now. Fellowship here is a word that we need to spend a little bit of time on. People use the word fellowship these days um, as if the word fellowship means spiritually hanging out together, or really as if it means hanging out together with people uh, with whom we are spiritually connected. And so we'll talk about, uh, oh, we had some good fellowship, meaning we sat around and, and had some good times with people who were Christians and, and we prayed maybe together or something while we ate hamburgers that we just grilled. I'm not belittling the idea that it's important for Christians to share times like that together. I'm not belittling the idea of Christians sharing meal together. What I want us to understand though, the word fellowship is not specifically just hanging out together. That is a fellowship. The word fellowship is a word that means sharing. Uh, some translations might say something or some lexicon or something might say something like jointly participating in something. But anytime we think of sharing, just in everyday language, if we talk about sharing some, well, I started to say something, but that, that really gets to the point I want to make. When we talk about sharing, there's always something in which we are sharing. You can't talk about sharing unless you're sharing something. You can't talk about sharing unless you're sharing a meal, you're sharing time, you're sharing company, you're sharing joy, you're sharing sorrow, you're sharing your house, uh, you're sharing something. And so when we talk about fellowship, if we understand that what we're talking about is sharing, we need to understand there's always the question in fellowship in what? Sharing in what? And what Paul says here is your fellowship in furtherance of the gospel, sharing in furthering the gospel. So I want to flip over to Philippians, the fourth chapter, and I think we can get a sense of the kind of fellowship that Paul has in mind here. In Philippians, the fourth chapter, and I turned too far, in Philippians, the fourth chapter and verse uh, 14, as Paul talks about the fact that he can be content in whatsoever state he is, but he's very grateful for the things that the Philippians have provided to him, he says this, verse 14, Howbeit you did well that you had fellowship with my affliction. Uh, and you yourselves also know, you Philippians, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church had fellowship with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you only. So when we talk about sharing in Philippians 4, we're talking about sharing or fellowship in the matter of giving and receiving. 
the Philippians were giving things to Paul. And Paul was receiving from them such that they were sharing with Paul material things, financial things, providing for his needs. And it goes on and it says in verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my need. So Paul was in need, he was in financial need, and the Philippians shared with him and thus they had fellowship with him. And Paul says in verse 17, not that I seek for the gift, but I seek for the fruit that increases to your account. So Paul is saying, look, I'm not just interested in getting money from you. I'm interested in receiving this blessing from you, this financial help, so that when I am teaching the gospel, when there's fruit of my labors, you have a part in that. You share in that with me. Now go back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, where Paul says, for your fellowship or your sharing in furtherance of the gospel. So you see exactly what Paul is talking about when he talks about sharing here. He's saying the Philippians shared with him in his work as he advanced the cause of the kingdom of Christ, as he advanced the gospel. By virtue of the fact that the Philippians were making it possible for him to do that by providing him funds, they shared in that work with him. Joe, good to see you back. Hey, Jeff. Sorry, uh, technical difficulties. Um, uh, usually that just means that I've messed something up and I don't know what it is. Well, <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Good to have you with us. Yeah. So you were talking about sharing. I caught that part. Yeah. Uh, so we were just looking at, at Paul's language here in starting in verse three, where he talks about remembering the saints at Philippi and making supplication for them. We talked a little bit about what it means to make supplication. There are different kinds of prayers. That would be a prayer request. And he says he makes supplication for them um, with joy for your fellowship in furtherance of the gospel from the first day until now. And then we went over to Philippians 4 and saw the idea of their sharing with him in his work. If I could just make one more one more comment on this word fellowship. Um, you know, Joe, have you ever heard somebody say that fellowship in the Bible is always spiritual, always sharing in something spiritual? Have you ever heard somebody say that? I, I have heard somebody say that. In fact, I used to say that. Ah. <laughs> so the passage that I want to turn to is Luke chapter 10. And actually the word here is, is a cognate. It's a related word. It would be fellowshippers or the, one, the sharers, the ones who share. It's Luke 5. I said Luke 10, but it's Luke 5. Um, and in Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, it mentions James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And that word translated partners is sharers, or koinonos would be the, the Greek word. And then what were they sharing in? They were sharing in business. They were sharing in the fishing business. So what we need to always ask whenever we read about sharing or fellowshipping or share or fellowship, what are we sharing in? And in Philippians chapter one, uh, the first reference here is to um, sharing in the, in the furtherance of the gospel. But a little bit later on, he's going to talk about being partakers of grace. And he's actually going to use the same word share or fellowship, the same Greek word with a preposition attached to the beginning of it now. And so it's really the same idea, but this time sharing in grace. And so really, we are in fellowship. We like to use that word, in fellowship with. We're in fellowship with everybody on the face of the earth who is 
saved by the blood of Jesus Christ to the extent that we share with them in God's grace. Um, so I think sometimes when we use language like in fellowship with somebody, we have a very specific, almost theological, almost ecclesiastical connotation that comes to mind. Um, but we should think in terms of sharing and then ask, what are we sharing in? All right, Joe. Ah, got a question. <laughs> so the question is, so where does fellowship hall come into play? <laughs> All right. You want to help me with that? Or are you, uh, are you audio connected? I don't think you're audio connected. Can you hear me now? I can. Okay. Uh, so I am kind of bouncing in and out on my internet reception. I apologize there. Uh, so uh, fellowship hall, um, yeah. that, it seems as if the word fellowship has been hijacked uh, by religious groups to uh, uh, to turn it to something that the at least prime the primary focus of fellowship in scriptures. I think we can say the primary focus is that of spiritual nature um, uh, from a biblical vantage point. But this idea of a fellowship hall is a place where people would go at services to enjoy a meal together or something like that um, in actuality we ought to think of the sanctuary or the auditorium that that would be the the, the fellowship hall sure that's where we are joining together participating together and in, in worship and service to, to God not the only place I hope um, but but unfortunately I heard somebody one time say that every time they heard the word fellowship they smelled Fried chicken. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, factually, if somebody is sharing a meal together, if they're sharing fried chicken together or coffee together, that is fellowship. They are sharing in something. What are they sharing in? They're sharing in a meal. But when we, when we, if we build a church building and there's this auditorium and then down the hall, there's this room that we call a fellowship hall and that's where fellowship takes place. We've kind of specialized the term fellowship to just refer to socially hanging out together, usually involving food. And, and, and we've missed what is the great fellowship, the great sharing that is emphasized in the Bible, which we really see right here in verse 8 or verse 7 of Philippians 1, being partakers of grace or sharing and worshiping God together. That's the kind of thing you would think would be in the forefront of our minds when we think what what should christians share together but uh, i think part of what's happened too is there's an activity that is not particularly spiritual but it's an activity that we want to engage in but if we can give it a religious sounding title fellowship if we can give it a religious sounding label then we'll get it in get it in under the the umbrella of what a church collectively is supposed to be doing Jeff, right, can Joe? I, Jeff, can I interrupt you before Joe? Yeah, can, yeah, you, can you yeah. go to your uh, speaker view instead of gallery view? Yes, I will do that. I, I'm sorry. Thank you for mentioning that. I thought I'd done that and obviously had Okay, and the background noise comes in from Joe once in a while. So if it's just there without you talking, Joe, I'll just mute you. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of activity going on out in our uh, parking lot. And so I apologize for that uh, sound back there. I think I may have been hearing the chipper. Or a That's chainsaw. Exactly right. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, let's move down in the text here just a little bit. Um, 
verse six, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the basic idea of perfecting something in the New Testament, we often see the adjective perfect in the New Testament. Here you have perfect it as a verb in English. Um, what does this mean? So perfecting something is to complete it, to bring it to completion. We often think of the word perfect and we immediately think of um, no flaw. We think of sinless. We think Jesus Christ. But the idea of perfect, even in English, the, the basic meaning of perfect is to complete. And, and the adjective perfect, the basic meaning is complete. Now, maybe in colloquial speech, maybe in everyday speech, most of us tend to use the word perfect in another sense, in the sense of being without mistake or without sin. Um, and that's a derived meaning. If something has been brought to completion, then, then you might have that derived meaning. But if you'll understand that generally speaking, when we see the word perfect in the Bible, it's talking about complete, um, then that's going to help you in a number of contexts. And I want to flip over it to Philippians chapter 3 now and look at Philippians chapter 3 in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect. Now, if we, if we bring our colloquial understanding of the word perfect, where we think sinless, then we think Paul is saying, not that I'm sinless, not that I ever, never make a mistake. Not that I ever do something that's wrong. That, I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. Back up. Back up to verse uh, 10, where Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. His resurrection. The power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. There we've got the word fellowship again, and this time it's sharing in sufferings. Being conformed unto his death. If by any means I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul is talking about attaining to. And then he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect. I believe he's referring right back to what he said in verse 11. If he's hoping to attain unto the resurrection from the dead, but in verse 12, he's saying, I have not yet attained unto the resurrection of the dead. And the way he says that is, I have not yet been made perfect. Not that I have already been made perfect. Why would perfect refer to the resurrection? Go back to chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we are being perfected until the day of Jesus Christ, which is the day of the resurrection. And at that point, we will have been completed. So there's something God has in mind for us, and it comes to fruition. It comes to completion at the resurrection. And so when, when Paul says he hopes to attain unto the resurrection in Philippians 3.11, and then adds, not that I've already been made perfect, he means I've not already been completed. God still has things for me to do on this earth, and, and the completion will come later on. Now, somebody might ask, well, why would Paul need to tell somebody that he hasn't already been raised from the dead? That would seem obvious. Joe, are you with us with enough of a signal that you can maybe share some, shed some light on people. People often ask if I am uh, with us. Um, and so I, I do think that that's an excellent point in Philippians three, especially considering 
uh, he is, I think, implying that he will become perfected. I, so I think that would show us he's not expecting to become sinlessly perfect uh, in the way that people might think perfected there. So I think that what you're saying as far as being complete, he's looking for that day of completion for himself as well. Why, though, would somebody need to say, why would Paul need to say, not that I've already been raised from the dead? Wouldn't that be obvious to everybody if he's writing this letter? Or were there some people who might not quite have that straight? Yeah, I think there were, were several that were confused about the, that very topic. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul is going to talk about... Uh, let me get there, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 17, men who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already. So they would say Paul's already been raised from the dead. Um, they apparently had bought into this idea, it was a Gnostic idea, it's an idea that some have today, that really there is no bodily resurrection that we're supposed to anticipate. Um, the only resurrection that Christians are going to experience is a spiritual one that you experience when you are baptized in Christ. And, and it's true when we're baptized in, in Christ, the Bible speaks of us as being raised with him to walk in newness of life. And so we were dead in our sins and then we made spiritually alive. Hymenaeus and Philetus seem to be saying that's the only resurrection there is. They're, they're saying the resurrection is past already. So and, perhaps, and, go ahead, Joe. Well, I was going to say, with that also, just like if we just kept reading there in Philippians 3, uh, after making those statements, not that I've already attained and so forth, in verse 12, uh, skip down a few verses just for time's sake, but what about verses uh, 20 and 21? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body, that it will be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Uh, that seems to be he's pointing to this bodily resurrection off into the future um, uh, and it, tying that together with heaven. Yeah, I think that's right. So he, he has the resurrection in view in this passage. And so that's what he's looking forward to. Well, let's go back to Philippians chapter one. Jeff, and yeah. Uh, I know you already spoke about the um, fellowship hall concept, but a question on Facebook came in from say G, a CJ. Um, and maybe he wants to go a little bit further on the discussion of, can you, can you talk about fellowship in that of eating in the building? Sure. Sure. That's a, this would be a good time to go back to that. All right, Joe, let's talk just a little bit about this whole thing about eating in the building. I have met people who worshiped in congregations where they might have some different practices than we do in the church here at Exton. And they thought that the differences boiled down to whether it was all right to eat in the building or not. You know, uh, we've already mentioned fellowship halls. Let's talk about that in context of, of the question here. Um, but, but first let's just define building. Uh, when we say eating in the building, I know to some of you who are watching this, you may go, what, what are you talking about eating in the building? Why is that an issue? I, we, we eat lunch or supper most days in some building, right? <laughs> um, what, what, what do we mean by building here? And, and I think what we mean by building here is a church building 
Um, and, and it's important to understand that sometimes church buildings are dedicated buildings that have been built, paid for out of the funds that are collected on the first day of the week, the funds that are contributed by Christians in accordance with such passages like 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And the, those funds have been used, among other things, to build a, a meeting place for Christians where they can worship. Uh, other times, a church building may be a, a private building that somebody owns. And, um, well, Joe, where you are, uh, you're in a building right now, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the church that meets here in Elmira is, uh, is using a, a building uh, that is owned by somebody else that's letting the church use that. So there's an organization. It's a nonprofit organization that owns that property, uh, including the buildings on the property. And... Uh, and, and it's a church meets there. And right. so, so is that a church building? Maybe that's not what we have in mind when we say, what about eating in the building? But it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Um, so keep that in mind. A church building could be, uh, you know, a storefront, a daycare center, and how a group of people, a group of Christians make arrangements to have access to that facility could vary from one time it, to it, another. And and both, both biblically and not, not as common today, but a lot of times churches met inside somebody's personal residence. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. So now we say, let's talk about my personal residence. Suppose there's a church meeting in my personal residence. Can I eat in my personal residence? Well, of course I can. Um, so what's this thing about eating in the building? So, so many churches today, uh, various denominational stripes, have put a great deal of emphasis on um, social gatherings, on recreation, and they have they have built facilities not only for worship, but they've built facilities where people can have parties, potlucks, uh, health fitness uh, rooms where you can work out. Um, you know, coffee shops. Of, what kind of shops? Coffee yeah, shops. Coffee shops. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So the question we really are asking uh, isn't. I don't think so much is the right to eat in a building. The question is, if a church is going to take money that is contributed on the first day of the week for the purpose of doing things God gave churches to do, is it appropriate for that church then to take some of that money and build rooms or buildings, whole buildings, that are specifically for the purpose of recreation, socializing, and that sort of thing? And I don't see that in the New Testament. I don't see churches using funds uh, that they collectively um, take up on the first day of the week for such purposes. I do see them using those funds for helping needy Christians. I see them using those funds for supporting Paul. We've already talked about how the church at Philippi sent money to support Paul. Somebody can say, well, where do you see them using funds to build buildings? Well, the fact is, churches are given the responsibility to meet and that necessitates a location it necessitates a place and it can be a place of all sorts of stripes um, but somehow they've got to obtain a place to meet in order to do what god gave the church to do uh, and that may take some money whether you rent a room from some organization um, whether you spend some money to put a roof over 
an open air space so that you can worship God free from the rain pelting down on your head, or whether you use some of that money that's contributed on the first day of the week to build a church building. Uh, you're still using that money to do what God gave a church collectively to do. I don't see where God gave a church collectively the responsibility to have a, a workout room, a fitness center, or for that matter, a place to have coffee and donuts. Um, so, Joe, yeah, do you, do you think and, it's... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I think maybe uh, to touch on that question, sometimes people, in order to justify that idea of a fellowship hall or whatever will say, as you quoted them a minute ago, well, where's the authority even for a building, for, for building a, a special building? So, and, and I think that what you explained is exactly right. We are instructed uh, to, to meet together. We find plenty of passages that deal with that. How that's going to be accomplished, each local group ought to decide. And even if that is a legitimate question in somebody's mind, what we are dealing with is in order to accomplish a spiritual or in order to accomplish a scriptural instruction. Mm -hmm. And so we ought not to try to defend something that we don't have in scripture where with, with something that we do have. Yeah. Uh, so even if building a building for worship, if that is questionable, even that would certainly not be justification to do something that's not described right. in scriptures at all. Right, right. Now, to be clear, I'm sitting in a building right now that was built with funds that uh, uh, contributed on the first day of the week. Um, and I will often eat my lunch right here at my desk. So I don't think, sometimes when people bring this subject up, they say, oh, you, 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 is it all right or is it wrong to eat in a building? They think the idea really is, is it wrong to concern, consume food in a holy place? I think that's kind of what people have in mind. There's a difference in using this building for what, what God wants this congregation to be doing as a church of God's people, using this, this building for edification, for teaching the gospel, as we're trying to, to teach the word of God from the book of Philippians here in this webcast. Um, there's a difference in using it for those meet for those purposes and incidentally um i need some nourishment throughout my work day and so i i eat, a, eat some lunch here sitting at my desk as i may be working there's a difference between that on the one hand and on the other hand saying hey let's take fifty thousand dollars and let's build a room over here where we can have parties or let's take seventy five thousand dollars and let's build a gymnasium over here where we can play basketball there's a difference in those things and, and, and to me, there's a vast difference because some of those things are very clearly distracting from the purpose purposes of a local congregation. Right. Right. Uh, we you can go to Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or wherever you want to get your coffee, uh, but but in regard to what the Lord has instructed the church to do, we have to take that serious and uh, and and not confuse that or. Or, or distract the the attention toward more physical things. Uh, All right. So thanks for that question, CJ. Um, let's make some progress here in Philippians chapter one and verse eight. So just kind of summing up here, verses three through seven. Paul thanks God uh, every time he remembers the Philippians and he prays and he makes supplication 
on their behalf. He mentions their fellowship in the gospel. They share in his work of preaching the gospel by means of the funds that they send to him. Uh, he talks about his confidence that God is going to continue uh, to perfect them until the day of Jesus Christ, by which he's referring to the day of resurrection. And, um, and, and then he goes on and he says in verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long after you all in the tender mercies of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and void of offense unto the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Thoughts that you'd like to dwell on anywhere in verses 8 through 11, Joe? I think I'm going to get a lot of feedback uh, noise here behind me. I apologize for that. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, I'll, I'll just pick up one, one observation here. Pick up with one observation. And that is, again, he, keep, he keeps coming back to this, the day of Christ. We saw the day of Jesus Christ back in verse 6. The day of Christ here in verse 11. Um, and then we saw over in chapter three where he's talking about the day of resurrection. Uh, so he's looking forward to that. The book of Philippians is, is not only a very forward-looking book, it's a very upbeat letter, very, very optimistic, very positive, which is interesting because as we get into verse 12, we, we find out something about the circumstances in which Paul was as he writes this letter. And so I'll begin there, verse 12. Now I would have you know, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the progress of the gospel, what things had happened to him, so that my bonds became manifest in Christ throughout the whole Praetorian guard and to all the rest. Well, what had happened to Paul is he had been arrested in Jerusalem, held under um, Felix for two years, uh, the governor there. And then when Festus came into office and replaced Felix, Festus presented Paul's case before King Agrippa, and Paul appealed to Caesar, and then Paul was sent to Rome to have his case heard by Caesar. And so he is a prisoner as he writes this, a falsely accused, of, well, hardly accused, he had been accused by Jews, but what had happened was he had gone into the temple and some Jews thought he had taken a Gentile into a part of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed. And they'd started beating him and the Romans had come in not knowing what's going on, taking him into custody till they could sort out what was going on. And while they couldn't find anything to charge him with, they kept him in custody all this time. And so that's the circumstance in which Paul has been. And the result has been the progress of the gospel. And uh, he's going to talk about that as we go on through the book of Philippians. Um, and so the point I want you to get is, in spite of the fact that Philippians is such a, well, let's do it the other way. In spite of the fact that Paul is a prisoner, he can write this letter that we know of as Philippians, this very, so very optimistic and upbeat and forward-looking. Thoughts, Joe? Are you back with us where you don't have the background noise? How's it going? We, we, we can try that. Uh, I hope that that's the case. Uh, I, I was able to, to listen to you and, and follow along there. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Paul is, uh, has deep longing for the brethren here. And interesting how consistent that is with Paul. 
uh, his love for the Corinthians and, and various others. It's not because Philippi is such a great church that he loves them. Uh, they are sinners. And we're going to read in chapter four, there's some saints there that have issues even. Um, uh, but he loves them because the Lord died for them and they have this fellowship together in, in service to Christ. And when he talks about the progress of the gospel, he gives a little bit of a specific idea as to one way in which there's been progress. He says this in verse 13, so that my bonds became manifest in Christ throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and all the rest, and that most of the brethren in the Lord, being confident through my bonds, are more abundantly bold to speak the word of God without fear. I think what he's saying is, brethren have seen me as a prisoner continuing to do my work as a Christian and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that has emboldened them to be bold, to be confident in speaking out about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You would almost think it would go the other way, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Oh, look, Paul got in, was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. If I do that, what might happen to me? But that's not the way that it works with uh, the word of God. Uh, this man is willing to, to sacrifice his own life as following the example of Jesus. Uh, and uh, I, I see the value of the gospel. The, the words of the Lord that saves the souls of men is more important than my physical existence. Now, that, now not everybody, not everybody was what they should have been. In verse 14, it's interesting. He said, most of the brethren in the Lord. Uh, being confident through my bonds are more abundantly bold to speak the word of God without fear. Most of them are uh, abundantly bold, not all. <laughs> and then in the next verse, he's going to say, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. So you've got different motivations. Some who are speaking out about Christ are doing so with a, with a bad agenda and others are doing it with a good motive. Um, well, th thankfully, the, the, this idea of selfish ambitions, uh, that, that can't be an issue today, though, right? <laughs> so selfish ambitions, you know, we need to think about that. When we, it, when we have opportunities to talk about Jesus, when we have opportunities to speak, maybe speak publicly, maybe when we have opportunities to do something like a webcast, whatever. We need to think, what, what's my motivation? Is my motivation because I want notoriety? Is my motivation because I want to be seen? Is my motivation to exalt myself? Or is my motivation to, to do something of service to the Lord? I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. We, it, it, is, it is crucial that we constantly uh, check ourselves, check our motivations, um, uh, what, what is it that's driving us? Is it our love for the Lord and his people, or is it some sort of, uh, wanting to, to be seen, wanting to be heard, wanting to be exalted by men? Now, interestingly, Paul tells us about the false motive or the bad motive, the bad agenda that some had. What was it when he talks about some who are preaching Christ of Indian strife what specifically were they trying to accomplish? They were trying to hurt Paul with, uh, with their own teaching. And I'm not sure I understand how they were thinking they would do that. Maybe you have some speculation as to how they thought they could hurt Paul by preaching Christ? 
So a couple of ideas come to mind. One would be that if they're trying to say, Paul says this, hoping to get him into more trouble, uh, but could it also be that they're thinking that Paul is going to be upset that they're becoming more popular or something, adding affliction to him in the sense that, oh, you're stuck in prison and we're able to keep going out. Of course, Paul's not bothered by that. So if that were the case, then it just shows how differently motivated they were than Paul was. They yes. looked at it as who gets the glory here right. and thought Paul did too, and Paul didn't. Um, well, what then? Verse 18, Paul says, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and therein I rejoice, and yea, will rejoice. So that's what Paul was about. And that's really a good place for us to stop. It's not an ideal place, but it's as good a place as we're going to get as we're coming up on the end of our time this afternoon. We'll pick this up next week, Lord willing, and we're going to see Paul's perspective on life as we come on into the next few verses. Okay, Joe? Amen. All right. Thank you all for, for uh, tuning in today.